Listen, today, guys, we are, uh, we're wrapping up Paul's big three. We are coming to his letter called Romans. It is Paul's longest and most comprehensive letter in the entire New Testament. It is the most important document ever written in the history of the world. Ever. It has made a bigger footprint, bigger wake, and a bigger impact on the outcropping of human events, whether directly or indirectly, than any other letter ever written. And it might arguably be the most important thing that you can ever read as well. So one theologian, his name is uh, Michael Gorman, and he writes in his book about um, commenting on Romans, just, just some of the impact that it made. He he just takes a journey of, just think about this, about how there was this one, this one Roman pagan, this, this heathen, his name was Augustine. You might know him by his first name, Saint. And it was Augustine who, without any impact or any relationship with Christ, heard a sermon, literally, on like Romans 13. This never happens. No one ever hears a sermon and this happens. But he heard a sermon on Romans 13. It made such an impact to him that he gave his life to Christ, he repented, and he became the most pivotal, influential person in Christian history since the time of Paul ever. And with that, the political and social landscape as well. It was an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther who was reading this letter to the Romans that sparked within him a complete rearrangement of understanding who God is and, and, and what he's about and how to have a relationship with him that led to the Protestant Reformation and the changing of world history forever. It was an Anglican priest named John Wesley who was hearing someone give a lecture on Luther's commentary on the book of Romans that led to his conversion, and he birthed the tradition you might know called Methodism. And with it, the revival movements that uh, swept the Americas and England and other places as well. This letter has catalyzed movements. It has sparked revolutions. It has influenced some of the world's most influential people and impacted the lives of billions. And it ain't over yet. And that's the letter that we come to today. And it's dense, and it's tough, and there's no way we're getting through it in one hour, all right? Which is going to lead me to what today's going to be about. Over the past several weeks, we've been going through the Bible, and we've been inviting you to text questions in. And, and what I've been doing is, is picking those up in the following week or so to try to, to breathe into them. But today, we're going to shift gears. We're going to do a live text in, and I'm going to answer on the spot. I'm going to invite you to text in any question you have on the Bible, on God, on Christian faith and beliefs on the church or this church about the intersection of God and life. And I am going to do my best job of trying to answer it on the spot from the book of Romans because the letter is just that comprehensive in laying out the Christian faith. 
before we get to that, what I'd like to do is just set a little context. Just tell you a little bit about why this letter was written, what was going on, and what it's about. And then we'll go into live texting, if that's cool. Make sense? So, Paul did not start this church called Rome. All right? He did not start the church that was in the city of Rome that he is writing to. This is, kind of a, this is kind of unique. Most of the letters that Paul wrote were written to churches that he began, but this one was different. And like most churches at this time, the church was predominantly made of Jews because Christianity was originally nothing new. It was nothing more than the continuation of that, that Hebraic faith, that Jewish faith with Jesus as the Messiah that it had been anticipating and looking forward to. So those who were initial believers and made up this thing that we call church, they were Jews. And church took place in synagogues. And you would walk in, it would be mostly Jews who came to discover that God, God acted in the next chapter of the story with Jesus. And to be sure, there were some Gentiles too. And this was common in the synagogues of the day. You would have what they would call the God-fearers, non-Jews that were attracted to this Jewish faith, this Jewish God and what he was about. And, and they would kind of hang on the outskirts. They would be like the five percenters, if you will. But then something happened in the city of Rome. And I got to introduce you to someone here today. This is Claudius, all right? Emperor of Rome, Caesar of Rome, from about late 30s AD to 54 AD. You can see he's got this thing in his hand and this sculpture from then, and it signifies that he holds history in his hand. So, you know, not a small ego there. He's got a dish out in front of him showing that he is the one who provides for the masses. Isn't he great? And can we just say, did the guy not work his abs or what? I mean, just rock. <laughs> this is Claudius, emperor of Rome, emperor of the entire Roman Empire and located there in the capital city of Rome. And in 48 AD, he issues an edict. And the edict is to expel all Jews from the city of Rome. Now, a, a Roman, not a Christian, but a Roman historian named Suetonius, he, he writes on this, and I want to show you what he says. He writes, he did this, Claudius, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. So he expelled them from Rome. And when I was reading this, I came across the Latin, and the Latin is just too cool not to read, so I got to do it today. Eudias impulsere crestu assidue tumultuantis Roma expulit. I mean, it just, can you just hear, it's like, get out, <laughs> right? Get out. Jews, get out. I'm, I'm done with them. I'm tired of them. Claudius said, why? Because of some disturbance or instigation. In Latin, in Latin, about this guy, Crestus. Who do you think he's referring to? See what was happening in the churches at this time was the apostles and the disciples were going around and they were saying, This Jesus who has come, who was crucified, is nothing short but God's chosen one, God's king, God's Messiah, the one from the line of David that he said he would send to rescue and save his people. And some Jews 
It's like their eyes were open and they saw it and they believed it. But some Jews said, no way. And we've seen the history of Paul to date. The conflict, the violence, the riots that were stirred up within the synagogues and population over Crestus, as the Latins would call him, or as the Jews would call him, the Messiah. And like a lot of rulers, Claudius just says, I'm done. You ever do this with your kids? I am, I'm just done. The TV's off. Throw the cell phones away and, and lock yourself in a room for like eight years. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. This is kind of Claudius' reaction to, to, to the, the tumultuous violence and, and, and riots it's bringing to the city room. Jews, get out. I'm done with you. And remember, you've got to think about this, not on religious lines, but ethnic lines. It didn't matter if you were a Jew who believed in Messiah or a Jew who didn't. If you were Jew, out. And in their wake was the synagogue with a handful of Gentile believers left because they weren't Jews. Acts 18 will comment on this as well where it talks about Paul and his travels and he meets Aquila and, 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 and his wife Priscilla who are out like looking for a home and a job because Claudius ordered them to leave. And in the vacuum of Rome is left the, these, these Gentile believers, these, these God-fearers in the synagogue. And what happened in the city of Rome is that the theological trajectory of the church, the culture of that local church began to grow now on Gentile lines rather than Jewish. Their backgrounds, customs, values, interests, needs. See what I mean? Then 54 AD comes along. It's about seven years later. Claudius dies the edict is lifted. <laughs> Exile's done, baby. Jews, you can go home. Can you imagine the conflict that that must have caused? <laughs> to be exiled from your home, your place, your synagogue, to find it taken over by the Gentiles while you're gone. And now things are being done their way. How dare they? Meeting their needs and preaching and teaching the gospel along their cultural Lines And so the conflict resumed. And what Paul does is he writes this letter called Romans to this church to help Jews and Gentiles get along. Say, hey, Jews, these Gentiles, God wants them saved. They're covenant people too. Hey, Gentiles, these Jews who are back, you will be here if it wasn't for them. They're saved. They're God's covenant people too. And he writes to help navigate this, to get along, to, to find unity, to strengthen them, edify them, encourage them, challenge them, do all the things that any good missionary pastor is going to do, right? Or some more as well. Because see, Paul is a missionary at heart. And if missionaries want to do one thing, it's to go somewhere new, bring in their message. Now, if you look at a map, Paul is from the city of Tarsus. The church is birthed in Jerusalem, but Antioch is the big hub. 
that, that the Tarsus Church and Paul is connected to. What we've seen through the letter of Acts is that ideas about how Jews and Gentiles should get along came out of a meeting here in Jerusalem that Antioch then started sending missionaries out into the Roman world to share with the synagogues. And what do we see Paul do? He travels this area. He goes to Galatia. He goes to Colossus. He goes to Ephesus. And so we have letters in the New Testament like Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians. But he doesn't stop there because where does a missionary want to go? Farther. So he goes to Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, And we have letters in the New Testament like Philippians, Thessalonians, Corinthians. But where is the undiscovered country? Rome, baby. I haven't been there. And Paul wants to go. He wants to go and share what he's learned, what he's seen, what he's come to know. But you know what? It doesn't stop there either. Because where does a missionary always want to go? Farther. And what's past Rome? Spain. And Paul will write at the end of Romans, I want to go to Spain. Because ain't no one ever been to Spain. No apostle, no disciple, no missionary has ever been to Spain. Neil Armstrong here, right? I am going to Spain. Can you imagine walking to Spain? So what does Paul need? Support, right? Support. I need a place to sleep. I need a place to regroup. I need a place where I can kind of like gather myself again. I need a place to get my provisions together. I need, I need money. And so he writes a letter to a church in Rome to say, hey, can I come for a visit? And would you support me too? the most influential letter ever written in the history of the world is a fundraising letter. It's a mission support letter from Paul to the Romans to go to Spain. And what he does is what any good missionary does and any good mission support letter crafted. He does two things. He speaks to them personally. Let me strengthen you. Let me show my investment also in you. Let me encourage you and challenge you and edify you. And let me bring something to you because it ain't just for people in Spain. What I'm caring, you're going to benefit from as well. And now that you've seen me, now that you've experienced me, now that you know what I'm about, maybe you'll dare to risk investing in me to live outside your own little walls and help me carry the message further as well. And this is the context in which Romans is written. And so what Paul does is he lays out his theology. He explains himself. This is what I'm teaching. This is what I believe. This is is what my message entails. Therefore, it becomes one of the most comprehensive descriptions of what the Christian faith is about as Paul shares it with this Romans garnering their support. And if you look in the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, what you'll come across is, let's just call it the thesis. What is Romans about? It's right there. The gospel. I am not ashamed about the gospel. 
The gospel is what Romans is about. And what's a gospel? It's a royal proclamation. The Romans used the word gospel all the time. When something good would happen in the empire or, or under one of the Caesars, they would send out gospel, glad tidings, good news with emissaries, heralds, apostles to spread that good news. And what does Paul do? Let me tell you about another gospel. Uncanny that it's right there in Rome, isn't it? Another gospel about another king, a better king, King Jesus, who's got some amazing news for you. And let me walk you through briefly what that good news is. It is nothing short of power. It is nothing short of power to impact and transforms lives and this world. It is a good news message of salvation. And it's a salvation for everyone, not just Rome, not just those who call themselves citizens, for everyone, a greater king over a greater kingdom than the Roman Empire, a message of good news for everyone, everyone who believes. And just in case you missed it, Jews and Gentiles alike, you Jews and Gentiles in Rome, it's for both of you. Because this is what the gospel does, the good news of the king. In it, you find a righteousness of God. Now, let me unpack that. You hear righteous, and you probably hear something like self-righteous, right? Now, is righteous a good word anymore? Unless you're like a surfer and it's like, righteous, man. You know, it's, it's not like a good word anymore, right? What I encourage you to do, though, is think about it in their day as they would on legal terms. Because if gospel is royal proclamation, it assumes there is a king that it's coming from. And who is that king? Jesus. And what is one of the fundamental roles of a king? To make judgments to decide between good and evil, right and wrong, to bring good to those who obey the law, to punish those who break it in order to protect those who suffer by the breakers, right? And what Paul will write extensively about in this letter called Romans is that there is a righteous judgment, if you will, that God is going to make on everyone in this world because he's the king of all and as a good and just king he must give good judgment and that ain't so good news for you and me because what Paul will lay out is that we're lawbreakers when it comes to God's law lawbreakers Justly deserving his present and eternal punishment as the church prayers will go. But that God sent his son, the king, to bear the punishment that you deserve upon himself. So that in Jesus, by faith, loyalty, and allegiance to him, the judge declares you not guilty or to use Romans language, righteous. Righteous. That in Jesus, God declares the unrighteous 
righteous by his verdict because of the sacrifice of his son. And that means salvation. Salvation for everyone who believes. Jew and Gentile alike. And that is what Romans is about. So what I'd like to do here and out is open it up. I'd like to open up the live texting. Because the implications of this are staggering. And as we've been learning about this and, and, and meeting God in this, I, I know that questions about God, theology, the Bible, and maybe Romans itself today, have had to come to mind, and I just want to invite you, whatever they might be, text them in, and I will do my best to answer them when I can from Romans here on the spot. Oh, you need a number. I guess you have it in the bottom, but that's a little better, hey? Eh? All right. Text them in right there to 815-314-0363. All right. Now, I'm going to bat one cleanup from last time. Why are humans above angels? About two weeks ago, we, we were teaching on idolatry, and something came up above angels, how humans are over angels. Why are humans above angels, the, the texter asked. Are angels not in God's image? No. Angels are not made in God's image. Only humanity is. And now that doesn't make sense, right? Well, if you're struggling with it, they struggled within the Bible too. There's Psalm 8, where, where, where the poet writes, you could almost hear just his disbelief. God, what, what is humanity that you're mindful of it? What are the sons and daughters of humans that you give a rip about them? My translation, of course, not its, but you can hear. Who are we that we think we're so special? This is what the psalmist writes, and he goes, you made them lower than the angels, but you crowned them with glory and honor. I don't know why God did it that way, but he did. You have been given God's mandate, as I said back then, to rule, not angels. Think about it this way. If angels are the secret service, then you as humans are the ones with authority that they are to protect. If they're the imperial guard, you're the Jedi. Does it make sense? Paul will even write in 1 Corinthians. He'll say this. Don't you know that you will judge angels one day? Do you know that? Paul knew what he was talking about. It's the case. At the pinnacle of God's creation is not angel, but humanity, given in his image the right to rule. Now, now, don't hear this the wrong way. It doesn't mean you're stronger than an angel. I mean, they'll take you in a cage match any day. But uh, a lion will too. So will an ape. And you're made higher than them. Right? It's all about roles and image. So, yeah, good question. Here's another one. Many times Paul refers to himself as a Roman citizen, as well as a Jew. In those times, how were Roman citizens identified? Did they carry some kind of paper or jewelry or some kind of identifying article to prove their citizenry? Why did Paul allow himself to be flogged or beaten with rods when he knew that was prohibited by, and I'll insert, Roman law? Paul explicitly 
plays the citizen trump card twice. And you can find it in the book of Acts. It's Acts 16 and Acts 22, 25, I want to say, right around that kind of neck of the woods, where Paul finds himself arrested and he, wait, I'm a citizen. But it wasn't the only time he was beaten. And how do you prove it? Well, just kind of like you said, no, it wasn't jewelry, though that would be cool, but it was documentation. Uh, Mark was in foreign countries these past two weeks. Did you carry a passport? Right? Right? You ever travel foreign? Have your documentation with you. And it was not uncommon for Roman Empire travel to be the same way. I'm a Roman citizen. Carry your documentation with you. But even if it was lost, stolen, or whatever, there were other ways. One way it was often proven, at least for in those emergency situations, I'm trying to get in the embassy, you know what I mean? You can bring witnesses to testify for you until they can go back and check records because you'd be kept on a list. Your place of birth would have a list of who were Roman citizens or your place of origin or your place that you, 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 you called your residence now. And, and what you would do is if you claimed Roman citizenry and you didn't have your documentation, they would go check. And if they found out you were lying, it ain't nothing compared to the beating with rods you were going to get. All right, there's a cross waiting for you at that point. But that's how they would do it. And uh, why did Paul allow himself on certain occasions to be beaten? Well, guys, you know as well as I do, get arrested in the wrong part of the world and the law doesn't mean much. The Roman Empire's big. And the farther you get away from the capital city, the more bribes speak than legality. And Paul had to face those realities. Sometimes bringing something up like that just ain't worth the hassle like it ain't worth the hassle for you going to court for your speeding ticket. You know what I mean? A lot of the same practical issues of today were the same practical issues back then, but that's a little taste of what was going on. Great question. Okay. Okay. Can you help me understand the sin nature Paul talks about in Romans 7, verses 14 to 25? Is this a generalization for the church, or is he really talking about individuals? If so, does this conflict with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? If you have never read 7, 20, uh, uh, Romans 7, 14 to 25, may I just say, cancel your life plans. Um, go read it today. It is some of the most insightful words I believe the Bible has to say. Let me summarize. I know that the law is good, but when I read it, it wells up in me the desire to break it, to do the opposite. Paul writes, I wouldn't know what it meant to covet until the, the Bible started saying, do not covet, and suddenly I start coveting. You ever have that kind of thing? He starts to say, you know, the good I want to do, I don't do it. I don't. I want to do it, but I don't do it. No, the evil I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. I look at that evil and I say I don't want to do it, but then I keep on doing it. And the evil, and he keeps going on. He goes on this, this tirade of that. He comes to this end place after going through this painfully for like 10 verses, going, oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Because what Paul sees is that there's two natures alive within him. He is the creation of God, made good in God's image. And yet top to bottom, he sees that he is vandalized, corrupt, and spoiled. 
like a human being with cancer that has both good and evil within them. You know what I mean? Fighting for him and for his life. And what Paul comes to the fundamental realization is that it isn't an either-or case with human beings. Are humans good or are humans bad? Paul's answer is yes. They're both made in the image of God, but addicted, enslaved, corrupted, unable by their own power anymore to ever be what God created them to be. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Dot, dot, dot. Who rescues and redeems me and gives me his spirit. Who gives me his spirit to strengthen me with the knowledge and hope that now the one who is within me, the spirit of God, is greater than the one in this world. Enslaved to sin no longer. That's what Romans 7 is about. Great question. Is it fair to liken Augustine to a pre-Luther Lutheran? Sure. Sure. But not in totality. Not in totality. You know, Augustine's real gift to the church was synthesizing Greek philosophy and, 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 and Jewish theology, New Testament theology, into a, a synthesized whole for how to understand life today. Um, but, but it's been said about Augustine that, that when it comes to his doctrine of grace, he's very much a Lutheran or a Protestant. But when it comes to his doctrine of the church, he's very much a Catholic. So uh, if you also asked, is it fair to liken Augustine to a pre-Catholic Catholic, I would also say yes. All right? Does Romans point towards premillennialism or amillennialism? Do you know what those big words mean? No? Okay, then we'll keep going. Does Romans address the fanaticism of something like ISIL or ISIS or Islamic State or whatever you want to call it? Uh, yeah, it actually does, though obviously it doesn't speak to that specific situation, nor does it speak to Islam because it wasn't born for another, like, 600 years, all right? But yes, um, first century Jews were fanatic, zealots, consumed with this thing called zeal, much like a modern-day um, ISIL extremist, willing to do anything, not all, of course, but go with me, for the purity and name and holiness of their God. And Romans will write things like, be zealous for what is good, but hate evil. Romans 12 will write things like, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing such, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do you really want to hurt him? Bless him. Romans 13 will write about obeying the governing authorities and not leading revolutions or extreme movements against them. And most notably, it'll talk about loving your neighbor as yourself no matter who that neighbor might be. It's all there in Romans 12 through 15. Read it sometime this week. Great stuff. Sorry, guys, it takes a sec. Okay, 
Is it truly free? Let me read it then try to decode. Is a truly free will, is a truly free will when your choice is either to follow him or burn for eternity in hell? Not much of a choice. I, I would disagree. I think it's actually a pretty important choice. Um, if someone gave me the choice to, you know, burn in hell or not, I, I'm going to choose on that. Um, you might not like the choices presented, but sometimes those are the cards that are dealt. I, I don't really know what to say around that. See, the choice really is, is not so directly as you put it, though, because there is a certain freedom of will, and I can push that to a, a greater degree if you want, um, to follow the ways of God or not. Can I reframe it? You have a choice. Get plenty of sleep, don't smoke, eat well, and exercise. Or don't. I'm not going to force you. I'll encourage you, but I'm not going to force you. Do one. You're going to be healthy. You're going to enjoy life. You're going to live longer. Do the other. Probably not. Right? I didn't make the rules. It's just the way reality is. See, the same thing kind of applies to God. If you want to find goodness in life, in joy, and peace, it's not that somehow it's something God gives, like, here's my gift. It's who God is. You find it by being in his presence. You find it by being around him. The farther away you go, the farther, it's like getting away from the sun. It gets colder and darker, colder and darker. But God doesn't force you to be with him. He gives you the choice to go where you want. But know that's the reality of the universe within All Israel will be saved. Really? Yeah, so Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six, And so all Israel will be saved. But it doesn't really settle the matter. Because here's what it comes down to. How do you define Israel? Well, kind of got a gut reaction on this. But how do you actually define Israel? Is Israel a nation? A political state? An ethnicity or race? A religious persuasion or belief? What actually is Israel? So much of what the letter of Romans is about is helping to, to redefine, reinterpret, and understand better what Israel actually is. And I love how Paul writes it in Romans 9. He says, not all Israel is Israel. Not all, not all who you think is actually Israel is Israel. To cut to the chase, let me sum it up. Israel is nothing but the covenant people of God. So who is Israel? doesn't matter what state exists out on the Med Sea. It doesn't matter what ethnicity might be. Israel is the covenant people of God. And who are the covenant people of God? Those who have responded to his good news in faith. So whether you're here today and you're Jewish, Chinese, 
African, or Dutch Irish, if you have responded to God's good news in faith, you are Israel. And all Israel will be saved. I'm out of time. It is just a taste of this amazing, complex, comprehensive book called Romans. I encourage you to read it. Make it your own. Because God's got something powerful for you to hear. And it's going to come a lot more from here than from here. Read it this week. Make it your own and see what God has to say. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. I want to invite you to rise. And uh, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. God, I think of, of the people of Israel in the Old Testament and how you would send them prophets. And so often the, the call of these prophets were, open your eyes, wake up. God is speaking, listen. Don't be blind, don't be deaf. Pay attention and hear what God has to say. God, forgive us when we're like the Old Testament people of Israel, blind and deaf, unconcerned, preoccupied, and everything else in between. Forgive us, God, for not seeking you with our whole hearts, for not conforming ourselves to your will and word, to not making your thoughts our thoughts, your words our inner being. For the times when we don't give the time of day. For what you've said and continue to say. God, speak to us through these letters in the New Testament. Speak to us through Romans. Draw our hearts you this week. This we pray. Amen. Would you pray these words with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name.